Hi, this is Steve. First of all, I want to thank you for all the great reviews on iTunes and comments via Facebook and Twitter. Not only are they helping us get the word out and stroking our egos, but your comments are also making the podcast better. You've let us know when we stray off topic. You've suggested great movies for us to talk about in the future, like Diner, Cool Hand Luke, and Chinatown. And you've even told us when our swearing got a little out of hand. John and I promise to try to keep the F-bombs to a minimum. Please keep the comments and reviews coming. They really help. Now, on to this week's show, where we go back to the film that not only launched the career of one of our most unique and innovative directors, but in many ways, it launched the independent film movement. We are talking, of course, about Quentin Tarantino's debut film, Reservoir Dogs. It was made in 1992 and has an amazing ensemble cast, including Harvey Keitel, Michael Madsen, Tim Roth, Christopher Penn, and Steve Buscemi. If you're a fan of Tarantino and haven't seen Reservoir Dogs, then what are you waiting for? You can rent it on iTunes or YouTube, and there's a good Blu-ray that came out a few years ago. So, that's Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs, coming up next on The Cinephiles. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a classic film, explore its ideas, the filmmaking, its history, and the influence it has on us today. Uh, my name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm an actor and voiceover artist and host uh, uh, and co-host of podcasts and shows around town here in Los Angeles. This week, we've made one of my favorite choices. It was weird going back to this one. It yeah. was, it was a little, I hadn't watched it in a while. Uh, we're talking about Quentin Tarantino's first film, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Uh, what well, you could say, you could probably describe this as the what is one of the... Uh, original films that sparked the independent film movement of the 90s. I think this is it. Yeah? I think this is the okay. number of those films. Yeah. You know, we're talking about Sex, Lies, and Videotape, yeah. and uh, there's public access. There's all these other... Oh, yes. There's, this one, to me, this is the uh, the number one. Yeah. You know, El Mariachi, of course, comes out right yes. at the same time. Rodriguez, yeah. Um, and, and really, of all these guys, man, Quentin Tarantino has continued to yeah. be... Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, you could you, argue, know? you could argue that he is the only one that has really uh, progressed and advanced as a filmmaker to where he is uh, better, almost better each film that he makes. You know, he genders a certain kind of appreciation from people, and genders a certain kind of appreciation from people because of every film that has subsequently been made by him has a certain kind of uh, maturity every time. Yeah. Well, and we, you know, we had this discussion when we talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Is, is Steven Spielberg an auteur? And, you know, maybe that's up for debate. Right. With Quentin Tarantino, it is not. No, you, you know you're watching a Quentin Tarantino yeah, film. Yeah, he's going to make exactly the film that he wants to make. Yeah. And it is nothing that anybody else is going to make. Yeah. He is who he is. He is an amazing gift of skirting uh, the line between uh, homage and uh, plagiarism. But he does such a great job with the homages that you accept it. Like all the 70s stuff, all the uh, things that he's influenced by when he was a video clerk, when he was growing up watching movies, you know. Uh, I, I tend to connect with him a lot because a lot of that is what influenced me as I was watching films growing up. And so I savor his films so much because you can see the influences all over it. If you've had the same kind of upbringing, you can see his influences and that's fun to discover. That, that's absolutely right. And it's interesting... Different generations of filmmakers come to it in different ways. Yeah. So, you know, you have the the early 
silent filmmakers. Well, they're just trying to figure out what this is. Mm -hmm. And by the time you get to Quentin Tarantino, you've had several generations of film fans become mm -hmm. filmmakers. So you have um, you have Truffaut in the French right, New Wave, right. and they are really you know Truffaut's a film critic. Yeah. And he, before he's a filmmaker, he's going around and interviewing some of the great uh, filmmakers, Hitchcock and Ford, and right. Howard Hawks and all those guys, and then takes all that in and becomes the filmmaker that he becomes. Right. And, then, and then in the U.S., you have people inspired by the French New Wave, yeah. like Peter Bogdanovich and Martin Scorsese, who are huge, again, film fans. Yeah. Bogdanovich also is a critic who begins his career by talking to filmmakers. Yeah. And now you get to Quentin Tarantino. It's kind of the ultimate level of... He worked in a video store. Yeah. You know, that's his. He wasn't the film critic. Right. He wasn't the French New Wave. He was a guy who sat all day, every day watching movies. Yeah. And uh, at the time, uh, during the, we're, get, we're having the, uh, the beginnings of commentary tracks. We're having the beginnings right. of special features where they have a behind the scenes featurettes that people are clamoring for, you know. And so you're able to get it's almost like what Matt Damon does uh, his line in, in, in Good Will Hunting when he's like, I was able to get the education that you paid like a hundred thousand right. dollars for for two dollars and twenty cents of late fees at the, at the library. Right. You can you can make that connection here with him as a filmmaker. He was able to watch all kinds of film and understand it and and understand how to create these films how to make these films and what made them work well and let's talk about i hadn't thought about this exactly but mm. what you say is exactly right on the money because for those of you who are younger yeah you don't remember the era between before vhs yes is that is that for like my son in his world he's he's almost five years old yeah and in his world if he wants to see something or hear something he just pushes a button yeah and all things are available to him mm -hmm. at all times right when martin scorsese wanted to go saw citizen kane for the first time it was because it was playing at a theater yeah and when it wasn't playing at a theater you couldn't see it right you know if you wanted to see that old hitchcock film or you wanted to see that howard hawks you couldn't see it yeah. then suddenly in the late 70s early 80s these videotapes yeah and for me i don't know about you but a day for me when i was high school or college was i'm gonna rent four movies oh yeah and that's my day yeah and 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 no one that, that could never have happened before like when i saw wizard of oz you saw mm -hmm. it once a year because yeah. that's when it was on tv and now suddenly you get quentin tarantino's kid in a candy shop right and he can go over and over and dig deep in all these films and that's where he gets his education plus you have premiere you have total film you have all these magazines that are coming out right. that are breaking that's right. how I started, you know, and reading all that kind of stuff, because I'm, I'm of age, I think I'm around the same age as Tarantino, all the stuff that he was doing. If you're a lover of film, there were, the, at that time, it was the beginning of information that could flow to you as a regular person. Right. You didn't have to go to college. You didn't have to go to a film school. You could get this information, and if you could understand it and apply it and read it and put it into practice, who knows what it could lead to. And I and I and that's why I always enjoy his beginnings because he was just like a lot of yeah. us. Yeah, you know, we just discover because the film the film lovers are a certain subculture f nerd, like they're, they're wonderful group of sad, <laughs> lonely people. Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I accept that. I mean, I, I'm a no. bit more social, but I know growing up for me, film was everything. You know, because my parents worked a lot; they were almost always out of the house. I had a very small, small group of friends. I was nerdy about certain things, and certainly film was one of them. And I got to what, what you're talking about. Like you could only watch a film at times. It was it would be on like the local station, Channel Twenty right. in DC or Channel Five, Metro Media Five is what it was called back then. So I got to see a lot of the older films that way, or on PBS they would show them occasionally, musicals or what have you, or Shakespeare stuff. And then you'd watch 
watch like the Japanese, uh, the martial arts films rather. Right. And you, so those were the things that you could occasionally watch along with some terrible seventies films like Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, or things like that. You know, and so you know, you you, you that your education. How often do you think Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry gets mentioned? <laughs> Today. I don't know how many times Peter Fonda gets interviewed on a podcast, maybe. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it, it, it's really interesting, too, because if you, if you go to, uh, this might seem like a strange thing to discuss, but the the um, Ernest Hemingway philosophy on how to be a writer yeah. was you had to go out and live life. You had to, you got to go fight a bull and be yeah. in a boxing match and drive a fast car and ride a horse and climb a mountain. And then you're going to take those experiences, those real life experiences, and then you're going to go write your book. Right. That's not what Quentin Tarantino does. No, no. Quentin Tarantino is. I'm my life experiences are watching movies. Yeah. And when you watch a Tarantino movie, you never forget the fact that you are watching a movie. Yes. There's some movies where it's like, oh, I'm in this world. Yeah. And in Tarantino, it's like, no, no, no. I'm. We're constantly referencing film. Mm-hmm. This is this is a film about film. Yeah. And so even though and and it's interesting because you could be 100 percent emotionally involved completely invested in the characters and yet at the same time aware of a filmmaker yeah coming in yeah um so uh yep. let's talk a little bit uh, about we've been talking around this movie yes um so first of all it came out in 90 wait 92 92 i think 92. yeah um and uh for those of you who haven't seen it i highly recommend you stop listening to us <laughs> and you go watch reservoir dogs it's Absolutely. well worth your time and then all the stuff we're going to say will make more sense and you don't have to worry the, about the fact that we are going to spoil every single surprise in the film absolutely so first of all reservoir dogs is a crime movie yes it's about a bunch of criminals who are using aliases so they're only known as mr white mr blonde mr orange mr pink mr blue and mr brown yeah and they're going to go off and commit a jewel heist but in classic quentin tarantino style the movie does not exist in a chronological order nope we see right before the heist, and then we see that things have gone horribly, horribly wrong. Mr. Orange, played by Tim Roth. By the way, this is an unbelievably great uh, uh, cast, ensemble cast. Absolutely. Has been shot in the belly. Harvey Keitel's trying to save him. We don't know what went wrong in the, uh, in the jewel heist. They end up back at the safe house, and one by one, people start coming in. Uh, Steve Buscemi is Mr. Pink. Yes. Michael Madsen is Mr. Blonde. And the question is... Who ratted us out? Who's right. the cop? Right. How are we going to get help for uh, Mr. Orange, who's going to die, Tim Roth? And who's the bad guy? What happened to the diamonds? And we're in this uh, boiler room mm-hmm. of tension. Mm-hmm. I cannot definitely say that about anybody else because I don't definitely know. For all I know, you're the rat. For all I know, you're the fucking rat. <laughs> all right, now you're using your fucking head. Before we know, he's the rat. Hey. That kid in there is dying from a fucking bullet I saw him take. So don't you be calling him a rat. Look, I'm right, okay? Somebody's a fucking rat. Uh, all brought together by this one main older criminal. Big, like The big bad guy. Yeah, the big bad guy, played by Lawrence Tierney, and his son, uh, Chris played by Chris Penn, nice guy, Eddie. And those are the people that show up. I mean, the, the, they all show up at the end of the film and, and near the, through the film at the safe house. And then through flashback, we get to discover everyone's story. Right, how everyone got to, mm-hmm. got there. And then at the very end, you actually see kind of what happened at the Jewel Heist. Yes. And, and it was interesting. So one of the things Tarantino says in the commentary track, which is an interesting one to listen to, mm-hmm. is he says, these are not flashbacks. 
And here's here's what his definition of fascinating. And I've never heard this before. Okay, is that what he says a flashback is? A flashback is when a character is thinking about their past, and we see their past. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. So you walk into your you're in your old hometown, and you go mm-hmm. to this place where you as a little kid got in a fight with another little kid, mm-hmm. and then we cut to. You, you as a little kid having the fight with another little kid. Right. That is me as a character flashing back to an event. Right. What he is saying that his this film is, is that it is a film told in a non-sequential order. So it's not that oh, it's not that Mr. White or Mr. Orange are thinking about those events in the moments that we are seeing them. Yeah. It's just that this is the order he told, chose to tell his film. That's fascinating. Yeah. I like that. And it totally works. He's completely right on a technical and definition level. He's completely right. By the way, I miss the '70s TV flashbacks where the where the screen would get all wavy. Yeah, yeah, the classic Wayne's World. That is a flashback. Those were the best flashbacks. Yeah, um, uh, and and it's funny because as a, as a linear thinker, yeah, I don't know how you come up with this or later in Pulp Fiction. Mm. This is the order I'm going to tell my story. Yeah, it's really and 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 and, and to go into the, the first of all, we start in the opening f- scene in this film. We're in a uh, diner. We're having yeah. some breakfast. It starts with a monologue from the fine actor Quentin Tarantino yes. about Madonna's song Like a Virgin. Yeah. And and, and instantly and, and we don't know what's going on, we don't know who these people are. Yeah. And instantly you're brought into that amazing world of Quentin Tarantino dialogue. Yeah. What the fuck was I talking about? So True Blue was about a guy uh, and a girl that meets a nice guy, but like a virgin was a metaphor for big dicks. Okay. Let me tell you what like a virgin's about. It's all about this coup who's a regular fuck machine. Now I'm talking morning, day, night, afternoon. Dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? A lot. Which becomes his signature throughout every film that he's in. It is the dialogue scenes that you wait for, that you savor and enjoy. His filmmaking is great. You love his films. But it is the dialogue, with is the foundation with which he creates everything that happens within the film. Because I think without the dialogue, you don't have your appreciation of the characters and your savoring. This is my opinion. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think it's hard to tell whether or not he didn't have the visual chops yet, mm. that they were still growing. Right. Or he just didn't have the budget to display the visual chops there. Yeah. But there's no question in my mind that from Reservoir Dogs... He's got the dialogue chops. Yeah, yep. He, you can, I mean, and I put him up with the great wordsmiths. I Absolutely. put him up there with Sorkin. I put him up there with David Mamet. Mm-hmm. I put him, I don't know if I put him up with Patty Chayefsky. I don't know. Yeah, Patty Chayefsky too. Yeah. Like the, these are the great writers of dialogue on film. And his is, in fact, I, my guess is if there was magical way to get some audio from a Quentin Tarantino movie that had never existed, you would instantly recognize that you're listening to Quentin Tarantino words. Oh, absolutely. And to me, it's, it's, those are the things that uh, persevere when I go to see any of those of his movies in every film, there is one scene that is, the dialogue is masterful. The exchange, the build, the tension, the throughout the dialogue, throughout the scene uh, is so memorable. That's what I take from it. It may just be because I'm an actor and that's what I enjoy to, to watch. And, but I'm also an avid film watcher. So I like the cutting of the ear scene doesn't stick out for me the way the scene does between Tim Roth and his, uh, uh, I forget the black gentleman's name who plays his the other cop. Yeah. The, the other the, cop under undercover cop, right? When they go through him, like coaching him through the dialogue and the exchange they have about that is great. That sticks with me. The scene in the car when they first pick up Tim Roth with, uh, uh, with uh, Steve Buscemi, uh, Harvey Keitel, and Michael Matson, all four of them, and they're having an, an oh, nice guy, Eddie 
rather, having an exchange, all four of them. It's a very brilliant uh, exchange that is relatable, understandable. Every dude who has a few guys, they get in a car, they have some random conversation about some shit that helps them appreciate their friendship and their connections. And that's what, those are the things that stick out for me always in a Tarantino film is those scenes. Well, I, I, this is maybe going a little bit out of order. And I was debating whether or not to bring up so there's a scene in the car where Tim Roth gets in the car yes and they have a conversation yeah and this conversation watching it this time yeah made me very uncomfortable well because it's a bit racist it's really racist yes and it's an interesting thing this scene is a a, a lot of usage of the n-word yeah and with this scene it's you you kind of go wow the world sort of changed I don't know that you make maybe Quentin Tarantino would still do this scene today he does yeah, I guess. He does still use them. And this is a thing that Spike Lee had an issue with, has had an issue with him yeah. throughout his entire career because he thinks it's unfair that he gets to use it. But Tar- Tarantino's complaint or, or counter is always, these are how my characters talk. I'm not saying it's right because most of my characters are criminals and bad people using these words. So they're not redeemable people using these words most of the time or probably all the time. If I don't have right now the, every single character in my head that he's ever written in a film who used the N-word. But I would imagine 95 to 99% of the time they're not redeemable people people you know they may be interesting they're fun to watch they're who you remember from films but you don't use the n-word because they use it in the film you and that's it's a it's a i think it's a valid counter and i'm and, but on the same side i also feel that spike lee has a valid point to make because he is a black filmmaker that word means a lot to him in his culture he's a very he uses it was it um, was it very craftily when he puts it in his films he's trying to make a point of that word being used in a certain scene in a certain way for for effect and i think with tarantino it's more about showcasing how these guys just naturally talk well and this goes into uh uh the issue of at what point is it this is just a character in a film yeah at what point is this what the film is or what the filmmaker is right and that and, and there are times where you're watching a movie and you go oh I think that I just saw the filmmaker there in a way. Yeah. That, like one, an example for me is in Braveheart, the treatment of the gay yes. guy. It's like the part of the reason that, and I love Braveheart, yeah, but part movie. of the reason that scene rings so poorly yeah. is that it's done for a joke. Yes. In a way. Yeah. And that sort of makes me go, oh, the film is being homophobic now. Right. It's not the dad is being a jerk. Right. That I accept. But when the film is being a jerk, yeah. and I don't think Quentin Tarantino necessarily crosses that line, but he certainly, and this is something you see, he's fairly fearless. Yes. He do, He's happy to get into whatever it is. Right. He doesn't have that sensor that says... Oh, what are people going to think of this? Yeah. What are they going to think of me? He's like, this is the movie I'm making. Yeah, and even even in this movie, he fought against uh, Weinstein for the ear cutting scene. Like he fought for that scene because Weinstein wanted to cut it. He said people won't get it. It'll be, it'll drive people away from the film. It'll make them not, not want to see the film. And Quentin Tarantino would not budge on it because he's like, if you're going to make my film, this is the film I want to make. This is this has to be in the film. And so the, these are these things that he's had since the beginning for whatever reason for personality incredible knowledge of film just the way that he is as a person that people have been willing to let him do his thing his way you know he's very adamant against product placement you never almost never see any product placement in his films these this is what he's been able to carve out as a filmmaker well and this is why we certainly call him an auteur yes it's funny i realize in these podcasts that i'm often presented with a fork in the road where you've said Mm. two things or more that i really want to talk about (laughs) and then it's sort of what's the decision of which one oh sorry (laughs) don't be sorry so for now we definitely have to talk about the cutting the ear scene yes but i want to put that aside for the moment we're going to come back to it um what 
I'd like to talk about is how what starts his ability to be this kind of auteur, mm-hmm. to say no. And the thing that really starts it is that he sells a screenplay. Yes. So he sells True Romance right before this. For 50000 For $50,000. Yep. And that 50000 I mean, Quentin Tarantino's a guy who takes the bus. He didn't have yep. a car at yep. this point. Uh, his uh, buddy is Lawrence Bender, who's yes. the producer of this film. Yep. They are they are hand to mouth. They don't mm-hmm. have a lot of money. Suddenly, fifty grand comes in, yeah. and he's got a little bit of breathing room because the script goes out. Reservoir Dogs goes out. It's an immediate sensation. Mm-hmm. People are really interested in this movie, and there's an offer from I think it's Gladstone who ends up being a producer on the film. Yeah, he wants to direct the movie. Yeah, and Quentin says if you had talked to me two weeks earlier, yeah, I would have said go ahead and direct my movie, but because he sold the script. For true romance yeah he had enough money in his pocket that he said no no i'm gonna direct it yep and that's really the key is he had enough safety mm-hmm. to be free to take control of it yeah. uh they make the movie for nine hundred thousand dollars yep. it's a low budget shoot it on a very short production schedule and it's interesting because that everyone sort of trusts quentin yeah you know as a first-time director with some very difficult material they go, yeah, you got it. Well, Kaitel was the key. He's the key. He goes, if he hadn't agreed to do the film and come in as a co-producer, the film maybe the film isn't anywhere because Tarantino's going to shoot it himself with him as the lead, Bender in one of the parts. Yeah, Tarantino wants to play other Mr. Films. Pink. Yeah, he wanted to play Mr. Pink, right? Yeah. And so it's, that's why Mr. Pink gets a lot of the awesome dialogue yeah. in the film, I imagine. And so this is so Kaitel comes in, and this is the thing, and it's fascinating because you hear that you read this stuff about him, and he pitched both. Uh, Reservoir Dogs and True Romance to Tony Scott and Tony Scott wanted to do Reservoir oh I didn't know that yeah but oh. to- but Quentin said no I'm directing Reservoir I'm pitching you I'm showing these two scripts so you understand that I'm a, I'm a good writer and I want you to do one of these films but I want you to do True Romance and so he did True Romance uh, which I saw the other night at midnight at the New I Beverly I've seen it forever oh I love that film so much and it, for, I think Tony Scott by the way is one of our great underrated directors I, I was having a discussion with somebody about this the other day and they're like if he wasn't Ridley Scott's brother yeah. people would talk about him with more reverence okay. and I agree absolutely well because it's the difference uh, uh, Tony Scott's the craftsman yes you know, and, and uh, by the way, I just the, the the difference between craft and art is always an interesting one. And I just heard a great definition okay. of what is the difference. And it comes from Ed Catmull, which is the CEO of Pixar mm-hmm. in his new book, Creativity Inc., which I'm telling you, anyone interested in filmmaking or the creative process, one of the best books I've ever read. Okay. And what he says, if I can quote it right, I'll try, is craft. Oh, no, I'm going to look it up. Okay. It's, it's craft is how we do what. I can't remember it. Okay. okay. Well, here's what we're going to do. Okay. I'm going to make a cut in this in this podcast <laughs> so I can come back and tell, and I will come in and I'll tell you what the quote is. Okay. Um, but let's keep talking. We'll go back to okay. it later. Okay. Um, so, uh, so he goes and makes this film. Yep. He brings in this unbelievable cast of actors. Yeah. Tim Roth wants to do it. Tim, Quentin Tarantino tells a great story about Tim Roth refusing to read. He wouldn't read for it. Yeah. And this is, this is a key thing in Hollywood. This is how you know you have a certain level of success. <laughs> yes. At a lower level, you have to read for your part. Yeah. And when you get a certain amount of cachet, you can say, I, I'm offer only. Yeah. Offer only means you offer me the money to do the part. Uh, but I'm not going to audition. Yeah. And the only way that he ended up auditioning, meets with Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel's like, come on, man, you got to read. He's like, nope, nope, nope. Then Tarantino and Tim Roth go out drinking. They drink all night. Yeah. And at the drunken night back at Tim Roth's place, finally he reads for the part. <laughs> and, the- <laughs> but this, this, and this fits the Tim Roth um, 
Mystique. You hear this from a number of people, at least I have, who've worked with him on sets. Or like, he is, he can be quite a prickly guy. He can be quite very uh, stubborn and adamant about what he believes about himself and his talent, and what he's willing to do and not do. You know, and I, and that's what's so great about the film. I think is uh, once again. Uh, I think the stories of making these classic films are just as amazing and fascinating as the actual film that you see. Um, the fact that he was able, as a first-time director, to get this kind of talent into a film. Uh, Michael Madsen, Tom Sizemore had read for that for that part oh, that Michael Madsen had read. They had gone out to a number of people to play uh, the Lawrence Bender part, including who he ended up using, Robert Forster in Jackie Brown. They wanted Robert Forster had read for it. Yeah, Lawrence Tierney. Yeah. Did I say something else? Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Lawrence, yeah. I was thinking of producer, right? Lawrence Tierney. Uh, they they went out to to uh, Robert Forster first. They were in a David Duchovny auditioned for a part. Mm-hmm. A number of people were looked at or auditioned or came in, and but I think what shook out was the perfect cast for this kind of film. Michael Madsen is so menacing, and he is. It's ironic because he's in a version of violence. But he is yet he's a tied to one of the most iconic violent film violent scenes in any film ever made. Um, you have uh, Chris Penn coming off of what he's done, you know, in the shadow of his brother Sean. You have an, an, a number of uh, with Tim Roth. You have with Steve Buscemi, who's still up and coming at this time, and Kaitel. But Kaitel is he's the linchpin. Yeah, he's the linchpin. Yeah, and it's interesting because and this is you know great scripts elevate actors mm-hmm. and great directors elevate actors and 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 Chris Penn is this guy who. You know, he's been good in he's, some stuff. Sure, serviceable actor. And and particularly, of course, in Best of the Best with Eric. <laughs> a movie I watched over and over again in the late 80s. I would argue Footloose, but okay. Yes, of course, Footloose. <laughs> um, but Footloose has dancing and Best of the Best has people uh, doing martial arts scenes. So you know which one I'm going to be drawn to. Right. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but in this movie, yes. Chris Penn's performance... It's really interesting. Yes, it's really it's it's emotional and it's sort of real and it's it's this mix of kind of competence. Yeah, you know the scene where he so Michael Madsen, the, the, as we said, this movie's played out in in non sequential order. Yes, let's talk about this actually before I get to the Michael Madsen. Sure, scene, is that we start with this very funny scene in the in in the diner. Awesome with, with the uh, like a virgin speech yes. and then into Steve Buscemi's character, Mr. Pink, not tipping. Uh, let me just get this straight. You don't ever tip, huh? I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But, I mean, it's tipping automatically. Uh, it's for the birds. Hey, this girl was nice. She was okay. I mean, she wasn't anything special. What's special? Take you in the back and suck your dick. <laughs> I'd go over 12% for that. Hey, look, I ordered coffee, right? Now, we've been here a long fucking time. She's only filled my cup three times. I mean, when I order coffee, I want it filled six times. Six times? Well, you know, what if she's too fucking busy? Words too fucking busy shouldn't be in a waitress's vocabulary. Excuse me, Mr. Pink, but the last fucking thing you need is another cup of coffee. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I mean, these ladies aren't starving to death. They make minimum wage. And I used to work minimum wage, and when I did, I wasn't lucky enough to have a job that society deemed tip-worthy. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. These people bust their ass. This is a hard job. So is working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? Well, why not? They're serving you food. But no, society says, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over here. That's bullshit. Waitressing is the number one occupation for female non-college graduates in this country. It's the one job basically any woman can get and make a living on. The reason is because of their tips. 
Fuck all that. And this is one of Quentin Tarantino's key things, mm -hmm. is that bad guys don't talk about being bad guys. Yeah. They don't talk about their jewel heists and their crimes and stuff like that. They're just people yeah. who are having conversations. And so now we have this conversation about tipping, which has nothing to do with anything in the film, yeah. except that it reveals who each of these characters are. Right. So by the end of that scene, we know these guys. And then yeah. they march off in this great uh, stepped slow motion shot where they shot it at, I think... At 12 frames, and then they sped it up, and so that it, it gives this weird kind of jarring shot that's super cool. It's been, in, it's been imitated a all, thousand all times. Yeah. Um, and, and then what do we cut to? We think, oh, we're, now we're going to go do the job. Now yeah. we're going to do whatever they're going to do. But that's not where we cut to. Right. We cut to Tim Roth in the backseat, blood everywhere, screaming in pain with Harvey Keitel trying to comfort him yeah. in this unbelievably jarring and brutal and emotional scene and this is something we'll see from quentin tarantino forever yeah. is the mix of light comedy good dialogue cut right into in your face harsh violent 120 percent emotion yeah and it's so great because of the because of the setup yeah you the, it's a great dialogue back and forth and ironically which i which uh, i don't know if tarantino's ever admitted that he did this on purpose but the person who sells out mr pink is mr orange who ends up being the the the, uh, the rat in the whole right mix so he sells out mr pink for not tipping when lawrence tierney asks who didn't who didn't put in a buck never never <laughs> occurred to me yes and it's that's great it, it's so interesting these little things and also apparently Apparently, when you see the movie, Chris Penn, when he is being told about what's happening, when he's on the phone driving over, an orange balloon goes by him in the passenger seat, the passenger window. Oh. <laughs> so, and, and Tarantino said that was an all an accident. It was not on purpose. Right. But what these are the happy accidents that you see in films that really make that take films to other level, almost mythical levels of how what was going on. You know, well, when, sh you know, when shit's going right, it goes right. <laughs> it goes no. right. That's exactly well, right. And you know, one of the hallmarks of filmmaking is make the most of your obstacles yes and take advantage of things when they go right because filmmaking particularly independent filmmaking yeah. you know having made an independent film mm -hmm. you have no safety net yeah you know if steven spielberg didn't get what he wanted to get well we're just going to try to get tomorrow yeah but if you don't if you're an independent film you must get it yeah and so if something goes wrong you have to adapt immediately yeah. and, and and hopefully turn it into a positive yeah. Um, uh, so, so we we we're with Tim Roth in the back of this car. We get to the hideout. T uh, Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi comes in, says we've got a rat. I've hid the jewels, and now we're in this boiler room of tension. Yeah. You know, and and with each of this, we get the I'm not going to call them flashbacks, but little scenes of how we got there. Yes. A little kind of back scene where we Harvey Keitel talking to Lawrence Tierney and or of Michael Madsen showing mm -hmm. up. And you see that Michael Madsen has this great relationship with Nice Guy Eddie and yeah. with the boss. And we're getting these little glimpses, but we don't know who the cop is. No. And Until the Tim Roth scene when he has the conversation with the guy. Yeah, and, spoiler alert, Tim yeah. Roth's the cop. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean... But I always forget how yeah. late in the movie yeah. we are yeah. before we see that. We're mm -hmm. an hour into the film. Mm -hmm. and, and what's funny is, because in my brain you know from when i first watched it yeah to me tim roth is the central character um because he's the cop and because his flashback is the, the longest which i really want mm -hmm. to talk about the commode mm -hmm. uh story because oh, it's unbelievable so great um but but 
so so in my brain he becomes really central but in fact that's they they all are really equal i was going to say that yeah as you were saying this now it occurs to me if you chose you could choose any one of those five guys and follow their story through the film and think they are the central person in the film they are the the uh yeah the protagonist in the film like including the cop that gets tortured yes kirk baltz yeah yeah who, who yeah. does a great performance it really does and they're all cuz they all have their own storyline they mm-hmm. all have their own journey they all have an, an emotional arc yeah, uh, they're all really unique and interesting. Yeah, um, the the so let's talk about the the commode story. Sure, I this to me is filmmaking off the charts. Okay, so 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 what this is 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 that in order to pa- now we're, we're an hour into the movie mm-hmm. and we reveal that oh in fact Tim Roth is the undercover cop. Right, and in this scene, his buddy, his superior, is telling him. In order to be an undercover cop, you have to make things real. And yeah. An example of this is you're going to tell this joke, and this joke is the commode story, yeah. something that happened to him. And so then we see Tim Roth, and, and the thing, that, the challenge that he's given is you must make everything that's in this bathroom real. Yeah. You have to know if there's a blow dryer. You have to know what kind of soap there is. You have to know if it's clean. You have to know if it's dirty, what it smells like. You have to feel like it has really happened to you yeah. because that's how you got to tell the story. It is, in fact, and, and they talk about this in the commentary track, it is Shakespeare's Hamlet speech to the players. Yes. This is what acting is. He's yeah. actually in a film telling a character in the film what acting is. So great. You know, and then what we do is we watch Tim Roth step by step go from being a terrible performer yeah. of this to being really good. Yeah. And, and this is one thing, and for the people who are listening to this who are filmmakers, you can see in this sequence why location is so important. Mm-hmm. Because you could have had the conversation with this cop in an apartment, in a restaurant, yeah. but instead they put it on a rooftop. Right. They put it in a fantastic, interesting location. Why? Because it's interesting. Yeah. Then we see Tim Roth in his room, not doing very well. Then we cut to him in this other unbelievable location. Yeah. There's a graffiti-covered wall. He's, a, he's now on a stage yeah. with the other cop in the audience and now being an actor. And when you watch his performance, when we first saw him doing it, he was bad. Yeah. And now what he's doing, he's pretty good, but he's good in the way that an actor is doing a good performance. Yeah. It's not real to him yet. Yeah. And then we cut directly into him telling the story to the guys. At a bar. At a bar. Yeah, late at night. And we're now in a real world, and yeah. now he's doing it really, really well. Yeah. And Quentin Tarantino knows that I don't need to do anything to make my cut other than have my great dialogue take me over the edges mm-hmm. between scenes and that we will accept that we jump from here to here to here yep. and we've jumped from bad performance to medium performance to good performance yeah. and then we do this unbelievably remarkable thing I think in film which is we go from him telling the story to him in the story mm-hmm. and for me this is fascinating because we have to remind ourselves this bathroom doesn't exist yes he was never in this room <laughs> this is, so, so in normal in normal filmmaking it would be a flashback as yeah. we talked about before yeah. i'm telling you a story about a thing and then we cut to the thing right totally normal but in that sense that thing was real yeah here this room is not real and in fact as we construct it we see that all the details that he was supposed to come up with are here yeah and then we do this thing which is now the next level of crazy i think which is that we do this 360 camera shot which is we hear Tim Roth telling the story. This is what we normally expect in a flashback, right. someone narrating their story. And then he starts telling the story in the bathroom right. while talking directly to the cops. Now, yep. we've gone completely outside of reality. And, 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 and it's become so real that he's placed himself really in this space. Yeah. Which, by the way, uh, the, uh, what they said is this wasn't planned. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So here's how this happened is that Tarantino wanted to do this 360 camera shot mm-hmm. and he wanted it to go over the narration of him telling the story in the bar. Yeah. But in order to do this, again, it's a filmmaking thing. You got to know, well, how long does it take for that actor to say that bit of dialogue? Right. So they set up the track and they're, cause they got to figure out what's the speed of the dolly move in the 360 move. Right. So they say, Tim, why don't you do that line? So he starts doing the line and Tarantino's looking at it and goes, oh shit. This is something. Yeah. Let's actually film him saying the line. Oh, wow. All my senses, blood in my veins, everything I have is screaming. Take off, man. Just bail. Just get the fuck out of there. Panic hits me like a bucket of water. First, there's a shock of it. Bam! Right in the face. I'm just standing there drenched in panic, and all these sheriffs looking at me, and they know, man. They can smell it. Sure as that fucking dog can. They can smell it on me. Shut up. Hey, so so anyway, you know, and then the last thing to me that's really and we and we then see revealed how does the soap work? How does the or not the soap but the water? Right. The blow dryer, which is brilliant again in that that stepped up slow motion. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that's interesting to me is we now hear within his story a cop is telling a story. So now this now this cop never existed. Right. And the events that the cop is describing never existed. Exactly. And what's most interesting to me, how would you describe the way that cop tells that story? Is he a good storyteller or a bad storyteller? I don't uh, he's an aggressive storyteller is how I would it's describe it. It's a really it. weird way he tells yeah, the story. Yeah. He's very aggressive. And so that Tim Ross character has made this commode story so real yeah. that he has invented a character for a cop telling a story that never happened in his story that never happened. I said, "Hey, Hey, man. Fuckhead. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird how he tells that story. But it's important that, and I think this is important as you're telling this part of the story, like, he creates an antagonistic cop that makes sense to those criminals. Absolutely. Because they hate cops. And kind of an idiot. Yeah, an idiot as cop. well. Like, because they didn't, you know, even with the dog sniff, even with the yep. drug sniffing dogs, they tell the dogs to shut up when the dogs start barking at him because he's freaking out that they're smelling the drugs on him. And that's it. He turns the cops into these aggressive, macho idiots. Right. And, which plays to the audience he's telling it to, you know? And I think what's great, just to make a real quick point, when he is in front of that graffiti wall, dude, that to me was so reminiscent of proscenium stages from Greek theater. Absolutely. And I thought that, that was so what it is. fucking smart of him and brilliant of him to do that because you're right. He is teaching you how to act in that small little scene. And everything he says the, that he has the, uh, the, the black cop say is exactly what you hear in every acting class that you've ever been to. It's Absolutely. so true. Well, and, and you have this movie that is essentially all about performances. Yeah. We have this cop. Obviously, he's performing. Yeah. But everybody else, they have a fake name. Of course. They have their identity. Right. I'm not letting you know who the real me is. Right. This is just who I am in the, in the film. The other thing that's really interesting, and this shows just how big Tarantino's huevos are, yeah. which is that you've built all this tension up to this point, and we, the, the, this, this commode story happens right after the ear gets cut off. So we've got to go yeah. back to the ear. Yeah. But you built unbelievably high tension. We reveal at that moment, Tim Roth is the cop. And then rather than stay in the tension, yeah. where everything is coming to a climax, Tarantino chooses to cut away to a 20-minute bit of backstory. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. That, that, I mean, because normally in classic story structure, yeah. you find out the stuff. 
and then you build the tension. Yep. And once you're in the tension, you don't stop. You keep going. Yeah. Tarantino goes, nope, that's not how I'm going to do it. Right. And it works great. It does. In the editing, you've got to, and I, I, we should uh, list, we should name the editor for the film because she did. Sally Menke. Yeah, Sally Menke. She did six films of his. Again, initially against her uh, agent's uh, uh, advice to do the first film. Never listen to your agent. <laughs> I guess, well, <laughs> but like, she, that's the combo you find, just like with the Thelma Schoonmaker with Scorsese. You, if you find the right editor, you're set. You're set as a, as a, as a director who yeah. understands your vision, understands which, and will keep you from making mistakes with your movie for the most part in terms of pacing, in terms of rhythm, and in terms of getting... So to me, the 20 minutes are brilliant because we've had so much tension and insanity up to that 20 minutes. We need a break. And that break gives us a, a fuller understanding of everybody involved in the situation so that when we come back to the glorious climax... We are ready f- to be ramped up Absolutely. again into it. Yeah. Well, and, and just just a note on the editor because she's yep. an unbelievable and died very tragically. Oh, yeah. I didn't know this. Oh, yeah, yeah, she died. Uh, I think so. I I haven't looked. I didn't look up very well. <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, in Griffith Park, she was hiking and fell, and they what? found her body. Yeah, I think if I if I think that's who this ha- story happened to. Where was she? Hi- where do you hike in Griffith Park where you can fall and die? Well, th- are you looking it up right now? Yeah. Okay. So while you look it up, uh, yes. But I believe that the relationship between the director and an editor, I think, might be the most intimate relationship in film. Yes. Because. Yes, you're going to have a strong relationship with the writer, but the writer goes off to write and yes. they come back. Yes. And yes, you have a very close relationship with the DP on the set. You're, you're, you're kind of, you got your hips, you're attached to the hips, yeah. but the shoot is a relatively small amount of time. And while you're working with the DP, you're also working with actors, producers, designers, all those people. Absolutely. Once you get into post, you're in a little dark room with an editor yep. day after day smelling of body odor eating old Chinese food yeah. and you better get along with them. <laughs> it's true it's yeah. so true because you're having so much time with them yeah she was hiking in Griffith Park yeah. had continued on the hike uh, while her walking companion had turned back uh, she was walking with her dog in Bronson Canyon uh, and then she yeah she fell and she died yeah. wow horrible horrible story damn yeah. how must that companion feel I told you to go back. Yeah, it's a shame. Um, yeah. And, and I know when it happened that Quentin Tarantino made a comment. I don't know what his quote was. Right. But essentially, like, he lost half his brain. You know. The, oh, uh, you know. I'm sure. Yeah. Her last thing was Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. Right? So, you know. But this is very important to understand and respect. Like, cause when we talk about these films, so much is involved that isn't just... Of course, we focus on the, uh, the director. We focus on the actors. But so much is involved here, you know, with the score, with the uh, editors, with the producers trying to get everything live lined up locations got like there's so much that's involved it doesn't get talked about enough but that's just the way it is you know and but like we we want to on this podcast definitely give uh, time to all those things you know you've said that it's like a mission statement at the beginning of every podcast that we do for this and it's and i enjoy that you know because it has to be respected and we're we're always going to miss things yeah because there's so many people that you know it could be there's just a pa that picks up you know, a piece, you know, like, hey, what about these shoes? Right. And suddenly that makes a difference in the film. Continuity. It's continuity yeah. from, from scripty, from your script supervisor. Yep. Little thing. Like Lawrence Bender goes on to be a, just a great producer. Yeah. You know, um, uh, another one let's talk about just for a moment. This really is Tarantino. Is movies got no score. Yeah. It's all songs. It's all songs. And, and I put Tarantino 
up with Martin Scorsese with the ability to pick songs for a film. I agree with that. He's got a great record player. Man. Yes. He is really good. He introduces you to artists and music that you probably had ne- There was a lot of 70s songs in here I'd never heard before. And I grew up during that time and listened to a bunch of 70s music. Yeah, but he just he just picks up. And once you hear that song, it becomes iconic to the film. Yep. Obviously, Stuck in the Middle is that scene. So now we're at, we're at, the, we're at cutting off the year. Yeah. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. So, so we've got a cop tied up. Yeah. We've introduced the idea that Michael Madsen's character might be a bit of a psychopath. Yes. Uh, although he seemed fairly reasonable in other scenes. Well, that's what psychopaths are. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Um, <laughs> They're not so, walking around just slicing people's necks. <laughs> so, 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 and now he's alone. Mr. Orange is, uh, uh, is unconscious because of loss of blood yeah. with the cop. And this torture scene. So people have rated this among the most violent scenes in all of film. I would absolutely agree. And... You, but you don't see it. It's awful. Is that what you? I'm sorry, Steve. I don't mean to no, cut no, you. No, no, no. That's great. No, you. That, you, that yes. was a perfect. Uh, <laughs> you spiked my set. That was just right. Yeah, it's off camera. Off camera. In fact, you see very little violence actually happening. Yep. And I think this is one of the key things that we that filmmakers miss, and particularly Hollywood misses, is that people think they saw that moment. Yes. And that, and the reason is, is that what we create in our minds is way more powerful. Yeah. Then what we see. When you see it, you're done. Yep. When you imagine it, it's terrifying. Well, this is why I don't necessarily 100% love horror films. I think horror films that show too much. And the good ones, the ones I do love, don't. And it's because the, the real horror is always in your mind. Right. What you can imagine is happening is almost so much more worse than what you actually see happening. Right. Because then you have an actual... Uh, parameter you have actual parameters set, set up for you to visually see what's happening whereas what I love about Tarantino does is he just very deftly and and subtly just moves the camera to the left and so that you don't see what's happening and then when you come back you see the blood and him holding the ear and talking into it to make fun of him and oh, stuff it's brutal which, which well, is and, very it's interesting so there's two kinds of camera moves one is called a motivated camera move uh-huh. and there's unmotivated so motivated is I'm walking and the camera moves with me yeah or even if I turn quickly to the right and the camera looks to see what I looked at, that would be motivated by my turn. Okay. The move off of the head is an unmotivated camera move, yes. which means you are aware. This is, remember I said that we are aware of Quentin Tarantino as the filmmaker. Yeah. That is it. You are aware. The camera turned. Yeah. Um, going back to the idea of things that you don't see, you know, this is one of the reasons it'll be a movie that I'm sure will come up over and over again. Mm. Why Spielberg is lucky that the shark didn't work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because the more you see that shark, the less scary it becomes. Right. And as a person who's done two great white shark documentaries Mm -hmm. is that, and people have this unbelievably high fear of sharks. Yes. Even though they are, uh, they're so not a threat to humans Mm -hmm. in any way. I mean, like there, there are... There are averages about 18 people killed by sharks a year on the planet. I love you to death. Yeah. I'm never going to agree with you, but uh, go ahead. Well, uh, you, mathematically, you'll have to agree. There are 800 people a year killed by hippos. <laughs> hippos? Yeah. There's over 1,000 uh, people a year killed by elephants. 
Right. Dogs kill lots of people. 10,000 people killed by bees because people are allergic to bee stings. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of people that slip and fall in their bathtub and die. It's true. Like, sharks are so far down the list. It is below getting killed by lightning. Wow. That's how unlikely it is. And yet, because they are under the surface and we do yeah. not see them. Yes. We, we imagine this thing, and yeah. that is what's terrifying. And it is imagining the violence in this film that is yeah. what's really scary. Yeah. And that the emotion of the actor right. is so palpable. And the sound, sound is really yeah. works on your emotion. The sounds of the gunshots are so, so loud. So uh, they, you can actually hear the cannon slamming oh, yeah. into the gun as the bullet is coming out. And that's what's so, what uh, is so powerful about those moments. The real, there's, the violence is only at the end, right at the end. And then in the scene where, uh, where the woman gets shot by Tim Roth. Oh, that's rough. Uh, who, uh, who was her, his dialect coach on the film. Oh, really? Yes. And apparently Tim Roth talked her into playing the part because she was pretty, she was very hard on him. On getting his dialect dialect right, so he wanted to shoot her as a way of kind of his little fantasy of it. So, so that, it's that's fascinating. A, that's a brutal moment too, because yes. you have now you know that Tim Roth is the cop. Yes, and he ends up killing an innocent person by instinct by because instinct. he gets shot first. Yeah, you know, but he does it, and instead of in that moment, you know, yeah, and it's wonderful performance on his part because you see yep. him shoot it, yes, and then you see the look on his face of going, "Oh my God, what have I done?" Yep. And then, and then you go back to the scene. Now we return to him in the back of the car with yeah. Mattel and him saying, I'm sorry. And that suddenly, now you know he's a cop when you saw it Oh, before. yeah. Oh, yeah. You didn't know. And so now the scene is transformed by everything that we've been through. Yeah. Um, one more thing we had to go back to with Michael Madsen, yep. whose dance and performance in this sequence is terrifying and weird and funny. Through the whole and film. creepy. Man. And he does, there's this moment, so he cuts the guy's ear off, but he's not done. No. He gets up, he walks out of the warehouse, and we have this wonderful sound transition where the music... Yeah, the music goes... Because this is source music. The music goes down because it's actually playing, and we go out into this neighborhood. Yes. And we hear neighborhood, LA neighborhood stuff. And he quietly goes, it's all in one shot, into the trunk of the Mm -hmm. car, pulls out the gas can, walks back in, opens the door, there's the music again. We're back in this horrible, painful torture environment and begins... While still dancing and having a good time, pouring gasoline on this guy, yeah. he's going to light on fire. Yeah. Until out of nowhere, in one of the most shocking, just moments, yeah. he's killed by Mr. Orange. And once again, the sound of the gun—powerful sound of the it, gun. It's so, yeah, actually, yeah. absolutely, and uh, it uh, wreaks justice. It brings its justice to him, you know. Oh, yeah. And it's one of those moments that he almost makes up for what he does, what he had done by killing that woman. Right. You know, he he. Because when he's in the car and he's got the gunshot and he's he's totally outing himself because he is legitimately afraid as a human being that he's going to die from sure. this gunshot. So he's like, just roll up to a hospital and drop me off. He is trying every okay. tactic possible to save his life while not 100% revealing that he's a cop, even though he is like coming right up to the edge in numerous, right. numerous moments. Um, and, then, and, and at this point now, Michael Madsen's dead. Yeah. And we've got... What I think is perfect split loyalty. Yeah. This is what the expression, is I, something I've always thought about, is trying to fork your characters, which yeah. is the, the chess term, is that both directions are, are, uh, are bad. Yes. Is there is no good direction. And that, that Tarantino has now forked the audience. Yeah. Because, and what's interesting, and I think he said this, or Bender said this in the commentary track, is in this movie, the heroes, the bad guys, are the, 
are the heroes. Yeah. And the betrayer is the good guy. Yeah. And so we have this. We, we really like Harvey Keitel. Yes, we do. We really like Mr. Pink. Mm-hmm. And now and, and the, now that the only truly good character, pure character, the cop, is dead. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the truly bad character, Michael Madsen, is dead. Yeah. We're left with all these people that we like. And there is, we see, how are we going to resolve this? Right. How can we get out? Is he going to, is Mr. Orange going to live? Is Harvey, you know, how, are we, how is he going to get out? And the answer, of course, is they're not. Yeah. They're not. This is a, this is a Shakespearean tragedy. Now. Yeah. Yeah. There is no exit for these characters. It's a... It's, Except Mr. Pink. It's a double... Yeah, he does. He survives at with the With the diamonds. Yeah, with the diamonds. <laughs> He's, I would, I've he always, did really well. I've I, always wanted to see a sequel to this. I've always thought that he that somewhere at some point he could, but you know, it's too far now. I really hope it's now. just Mr. Pink sitting on a beach, all la, <laughs> la trading places at the end. <laughs> you know, and that's it. <laughs> Feeling the, good, Lewis. <laughs> looking good. Um, that's kind of where I hope he <laughs> Well, there were rumors. Oh, he's very pale skinned, so I worry about Yeah, that's true. That's true. He would lobster it up. But the rumors were that uh, he was going to do a, a sequel of sorts after this movie, because, after Pulp Fiction, because he had established Vic Vega and Vincent Vega. Right. And it killed them both off uh, in their separate films and was going to do a the beginnings of them, but they had gotten too old by the time he wrote the script and couldn't get it done in time. And there's no way you're recasting those two guys. Just, I don't know why you'd bother. They're just so great at playing those particular. And this was also great about Quentin Tarantino's films. Like they're, they can be interrelated. The, 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 um, prostitute that uh, uh, Harvey Keitel is talking about named Alabama is Alabama Worley from True Romance. Oh, yeah, these that. are all connected. Vince Vega is connected to Vince, Vic Vega. You know, there's there's all this stuff that stretches out in those first three films of his that connect. And it's, you know, it's great to see that, you know. And I think there are allusions to a couple of people in kill bill even Mm. and so there are things that occur within this these worlds that he creates that for as you're walking into it you know you really enjoy seeing how interconnected this stuff can actually be and it's a small little like nerd kick that you get out of it again because tarantino's a guy who wants you to know you're watching a movie (laughs) exactly it's not ruining anything yeah we're not we're not going hey wait a minute why is this you 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 enjoy the fact. Yeah. And Tarantino is a director, and he's always interesting whenever you hear him interviewed. Yes. But he must do something right because he has an ability to get great performances out of actors mm-hmm. who maybe aren't so great elsewhere. Yeah. Afterwards or before. Yeah. 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 He finds a thing. Michael Madsen being a. I mean, I like Michael Madsen. You're a lot, right. But he's a strange actor. Yep. And he is off the charts good in this movie. Yes, he is. In a way he never is again. This and Kill Bill, Volume 2, I think he's great. And that's whenever he works with Tarantino, he brings out the best in him. It's a great point you make, Steve. Because other than that, he's, his, his career is full of a bunch of B-movies and then occasional spurts in smaller parts like in The Natural, where he plays Bump. Bump, right. Braille, Bump, Braille, Bump Bailey, and which is good. And I love. Yeah, it's good. one of my favorite movies. That's yes. another. We will. So, so coming soon at some point, maybe we'll do the natural. Absolutely, I would love to do the natural. But, the, but those things, and you're right. Like Travolta is never better than he is in this film. Oh yeah. And uh, to reach all the way back to something you brought up at the beginning about the usage of the N word, Sam Jackson legitimizes Quentin Tarantino in the black community. He sure. legitimizes him because. He is the one character that, or the one actor that is in just about every one of his films after a certain point. And he, the usage of the N-word, he, he has come out in numerous interviews and defended Quentin Tarantino and for using the word. And for, so I find this very interesting because I think Sam is a fantastic actor who is never better than he is with Tarantino, in Tarantino films, which is what you were, you were saying. He takes these great actors. And Sam's a good actor, great actor. Oh, yeah. But he's good. Nick Fury's fine. But 
I think what Tarantino really does well is he gives actors that can step up to the plate material to show you the depths of their talent and their Absolutely. abilities. Well, and I think Sam, you know, if Sam, ja- if Sam Jackson's legitimizes Tarantino, it goes the other way. Yes. Because Tarantino makes Samuel Jackson. Yes. He has this unbelievable Absolutely. Uh, turn in uh, Jungle Fever, yes. right? Where he's fantastic. Yep. But still, he's not a big actor. No. And then through Tarantino, it's like he, he explodes. By the way, do you know what his uh, gig was before, like to, to make money as an actor early? No, no. This is one of the greatest things ever, <laughs> is that he was... Bill Cosby's stand-in for The Cosby Show. What? Yeah. So he put on the sweaters, and there's a whole other Cosby family, and they would come out on the set to, you know, for lighting and for setups. Well, well, you know, and I was about to say, oh, well, Bill man. Cosby's off doing another Yeah, show. yeah, yeah. Uh, allegedly. Uh, allegedly. Uh, we don't want to get a, sued. That's a rough one. Yeah. Yeah, let's move on from that. Yes. But yeah, that's one of his first gigs. Wow. Bill Cosby. I wish someone had photos of that. I'm sure there are some. There have to be. There, there have to be. Um now more than ever, they should be released. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, back to Reservoir Yes, Dogs. yes, yes. Uh, Bill Cosby can distract I, my brain a little bit. Yeah, well, all rough. of us. Yeah. Um, uh, I, this really shows, why, you know, you look at that, that moment. In t- oh, here's the question I wanted to ask. Yeah. Is, so, what effect does, does Tarantino, the arrival of Reservoir Dogs, have on the film world? Well, I can speak for me personally and then probably the film world because I think it's, for me it's all interconnected. Uh, it, to me, it reawoken. It reawoken. It, I mean, it reawakened a desire to, to, to know more, to learn more, to explore what was going on. I'm 21, 22 when this film comes out. Right. And I don't, I don't care about aging myself. I'm a young soul. And when this film comes out, all of a sudden, I went to see it four or five times in the theaters. And then I rented the VHS numerous times. I had viewings at my house of people who were fellow cinephiles to see it for the first time. Like I did everything possible. It just made me so excited about film. And I think this is, was a response as we, I think we said this in the, in the, um, in the Raiders of the Lost Ark podcast, it was a response to the tentpole blockbuster films that were starting to become standard fare for the um, studios. And it, it kind of awoke this idea of writing stuff, of smaller films being noticed. And, and, you, and it built Miramax. Like it's one Absolutely. of those, one of those uh, founding pieces of the foundation that built Miramax. Because I think without Tarantino, I don't think Miramax is what it is. There's no way. Absolutely. Because there are so many filmmakers that have come into the Miramax world and have not stayed consistent no, he was in the their juggernaut. productivity. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, so it, I, it's hugely influential just in terms, so in terms of content, Yeah. right after suddenly we get all these movies with a lot of violence, you know. That as well, and, yeah. And a lot of fast-talking, swearing people Yes. that are not as good as this. Nope. Uh, who don't understand to do it as always, you know, and I'll say this, I'm sure many times that Hollywood's tendency is to imitate the surface yeah. and not understand what's going on underneath. Right. So that happens. It kind of fizzles out fairly quickly yeah. because people can't do what Tarantino's doing. Right. And then the other thing is, this is what creates Sundance. Yes. You know, Sundance, the film festival been Absolutely. around for quite a long time, yeah. but Sundance as the place to discover young talent, mm-hmm. which it really was for the next 15 to 20 years yeah. uh, after this film, uh, it's much. It's less so now. Yeah. Uh, Sundance is really. It's become so big that it isn't what it was. Right. But for that time, Sundance was the place that Hollywood went to discover young filmmakers, yeah. and that really starts with Tarantino 
Rod Rodriguez and Steven Soderbergh. Agree. And then you lead into, you lead into Kevin Smith and Alison Anders and a bunch yeah. of these other filmmakers that really kind of made their name doing these other films uh, and, and getting the opportunity to do these films because there was a public for these films and there was a public for these films because of Tarantino and Soderbergh and uh, uh, who you mentioned earlier as well. Yeah. Uh, coming in at that time, you know, so that's the, it, it has such a lasting effect uh, uh, throughout the entire and Pulp Fiction solidifies it. Absolutely. Like, Reservoir Dogs begins it. Pulp Fiction solidifies it. Because Pulp Fiction is, in, in fact, monster hit. Yeah. Reservoir Dogs does great. It makes 20 million dollars right. or something, which for a movie made under a million bucks. Yeah, it's great. It's not chump change. Right. But but Reservoir Dogs is a huge hit. Um, uh, Pulp Fiction, yeah, yeah, and I and I think it's this mo- that moment in time, and we're in a similar moment, I think now, yeah, which is there are moments where Hollywood has ceased to serve the needs of the people. You mm-hmm. know, this is in the late '60s, the studio system is falling apart, and that's you get the emergence of the '70s filmmakers. Yes, in response to that moment, yeah, and then that gets you know in the '80s, the studios have come back in their new way with ten yeah. big tentpole movies, and this is a response to that. Yeah, and then and then today we're in a similar moment in time where it's okay with the internet and with YouTube mm-hmm. and with the rise of all these channels on TV, suddenly things are challenging the norms. Yeah. And you know, because generally the really groundbreaking stuff, you cannot depend upon the studio to make it. Yeah. Their, their budgets are too high. The risks are too high. Corporate culture is too complex. They're not going to do it. Yeah. But Netflix can do it. Yeah. You know, or YouTube can do it. Yeah. You know, different places can do it. Well, and you see that with the blockbuster, you're not going to find these amazingly well-written scenes in blockbusters. It just doesn't happen. They've got to get to the next explosion, the next action scene, the next stuff. I mean, I'm not saying they're not well-written in terms of like servicing the the needs of the film. I'm saying you're not going to find the kind of dialogue that you would find, for example, at the beginning of Inglorious Bastards between Christoph Waltz and that uh, gentleman who's hiding uh, Melanie Laurent in her basement, in his basement. Those scenes... Oh my God, those, 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 you're not just not going to find them. Well, and they don't survive the notes. Yes. You know, true, like you, true. To the scene we talked about with the use of the N word, which was very upsetting yeah, for me yeah. watching this time. I really, it really threw me out. I'm of the getting that sense. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, but you can't get that. That scene doesn't exist in a movie which is run by a studio, run by a corporation. Right. Exactly. That has well, product placements and. Yeah. Well, what about Hateful Eight? I mean, the N word is used pretty liberally in Hateful Eight. That didn't bother you? Kurt uh, Russell uses it. Goggins definitely uses it. Bruce Stern uses it. it no, it and does, Samuel Jackson it, uses it quite it, a lot. It, it does bother me. It does bother me. Okay, I mean, but it, it's you know, and that's okay. I've been asking. We're in. We're in a. This is this is obviously topic for other. We're going to get into other films and deal with these issues. Sure. These are these are complicated issues. Do the right thing is probably the film to discuss. That's the one I want. That's that I want to do that one. Yeah. Um, uh, any final thoughts? Uh, yeah, just that if you haven't seen this movie, uh, please do yourself a huge favor and watch it. Watch it in any form that it comes in. Uh, the Blu-ray is real cheap. It shouldn't cost you anything to get the Blu-ray. But there's so much to discover about the film. The soundtrack is fantastic. The dialogue is amazing. And you're catching these actors at their hungriest. Absolutely. Including Kaitel. Yeah. This was a there was this was a rebirth of Keitel, right. who had been great in the seventies and early eighties films. Right. So it was an appreciation of him, and like like Steve said earlier, you a lot of these actors have give their best performances working with Tarantino, and you really savor this film. And the double Mexican standoff at the end is oh, worth it. The, the uh, it's just such a fantastic thing to watch, and it's so surprising when it happens. Uh, and then the uh, the irony of who survives. It's just so ironic yeah. that the whiny, crying one that bitches the most is the one that survives. I think it was brilliant. Well, because there is nothing predictable that happens in this movie. Yes. 
you cannot know where this movie is going to go. Mm-hmm. And it's really the sign of, you know, I'm not sure if there's lessons for, there are lessons for filmmakers in Absolutely. here. Absolutely. But one of the first lessons is try to be a genius. because this is really a film to me made by just a brilliant brilliant person who is completely unique he's his own guy would you say one last thing would you say that it's akin to what Wells did with Citizen Kane like as a as a right off the bat to create a film like this it's not necessarily a masterpiece but it certainly is one of the most amazing debuts by a filmmaker ever I I think it's in the top 10 debuts I don't don't think I mean you know I know you love Citizen Kane we're gonna talk about that later that movie is is is, it, it, here's, where, here's where I think it's okay. similar, is that what's always interesting to me about these kinds of films is that, surprisingly enough, the most interesting elements of them are actually not imitated. Yes. You know, and you look at Kane, it's not like everybody came out and made movies like Citizen Kane. Right. They learned lots of stuff from yeah. it. And the same is true of Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. It is its own unique thing. Mm-hmm. There isn't anything like it. Yeah. Um, so I found my quote of craft. Oh, yes. Great. This is art. Right. So the quote, and this is from, as I said, Ed Catmull, the uh, founder of Pixar. Mm-hmm. And the quote is, craft is what we are expected to know. Art is the unexpected use of our craft. Oh, that's great. Isn't that good? That is fantastic. It, was it really was. On my iPad you, don't need, you don't need to edit now. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. There's still a little bumbling part earlier. <laughs> uh, but there will always be a bumbling part. It's going to happen. That's, that's what podcasts are for. All right. So that's yeah. it for uh, this episode of The Cinephiles. Uh, yeah. John, where, they can, where can they find you? Oh, yeah. You guys can always follow me at The Roca Says, R-O-C-H-A, on Twitter and on Instagram. You can see all the shows that I'm hosting, all the shows that I'm guesting on, and any of the work that I do as voiceover artist or as a commercial and theatrical actor and you can find me at at sr morris on uh, twitter and you can read my blog on politics and philosophy at a civil if you're into that kind of thing yes all right that's it we will see you next time where we take apart another classic film 